You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. As you may know, I'm a big fan of sauna. I I use my sauna, I mean, almost most days, I think now. Uh, I use it after a workout or sometimes just in the evenings to help me unwind and um, have a good sweat out. It helps me sleep really well. Anyway, enough about me. I'm super excited that this season of Well and Good is brought to you by Foundspace. Foundspace are an incredible infrared sauna company. Now, here's the amazing bit. These guys are giving away one of their saunas to one of our listeners. That's right, they're giving away a whole sauna. So listen along and find out how you can win. G'day, kia ora. Welcome to another episode of Well and Good. Today, I sat down and chatted with Dr. Anna Brooks, who is one of New Zealand's top immunologists and an expert in studying viruses and recognising how they might make us sick and how they can be treated. This year has been pretty crazy in terms of sicknesses. I feel like everyone has been constantly sick all winter, at least that's how it's been in our household. And this discussion is a really good reminder about the things that we can do for our immunity. There's a lot in here that might seem like common sense, but Anna also busts a few myths with a handful of points that might surprise you. We talk about the significance of basic things like sleep and diet, but also antibiotics, supplements, and a really interesting revelation about how viruses you catch as a child can stay latent in your system and react to other things further down the track. Anna's also leading New Zealand research into COVID-19, particularly long COVID, and she's able to highlight what we've learned, what we're learning, but also what we're still yet to find out, which is also quite significant. So I think this is a really interesting podcast because I think immunity is often overlooked in terms of health, but it's so important for us. And this is a really good down-to-earth episode. It cuts to the core of well-being, and I think you're going to like it. The first question I have for you is, what's the strangest or most interesting thing you've ever done for your health? Yeah, so my general health and wellness journeys probably started a good 20 years ago. And it all sort of was sparked by sort of persistent, annoying allergy type symptoms. I mean, there's a long history, so I won't go into that. But essentially... What sort of allergy symptoms? Sneezy. I, I hate the term hay fever because it sounds like it's pollen. But basically, sneezing a lot, plus skin and sometimes I, I stop and think, why did I start on this journey again? And I forget the reasons why I first started. It was actually a skin condition as well, sort of cracked cracked hands. Really? Yeah. And I was like, what on earth's all this? So I sort of started looking into bits and pieces. So my first sort of strong change in dietary interventions, I guess, was, was going gluten-free. So I sort of went gluten-free and that cleared up my skin, but it wasn't enough. And then I went from gluten-free to slowly low-carbish. Then realised I wasn't low-carb at all. I was like, this isn't low-carb. Because I was a big fan of, I love, like, fibre and good food, but I was that classic person that was not really looking at carbohydrate. Actual, the actual um, I wasn't I grams wasn't. of carbohydrate. Totally. And so so to be, like, low-carb, you're talking how many grams of carbohydrate would you Oh, eat? I wasn't doing any sort of formal tracking. I yeah. just sort of thought, oh, these things are bad, so I sort of started to cut them out. Yeah. So this was a long time ago. So I was sort of slowly, you know, uh, like my allergy-type symptoms, sneezy stuff was starting to get a bit better, but my skin, my cracked hands and all these, basically I was highly allergic to my jewellery. Really? Yeah. 
So it would get all cracked and stuff around yep. while you're jewelry. Yeah. Yep. This ring I wear now, I would put it on and like within minutes it would flare up. So it looked like I had this strong like metal allergy as well. Wow. So I guess that my whole journey sort of begun by realizing that so many things that manifest on your skin are to do with your skin barrier, what you're putting on it, plus what's going in your mouth. So diet and what you're coming into contact with. So as I say, it's been a long journey, but I guess the biggest thing I do now that I don't often discuss or chat about is the fact that I'm pretty much fat adapted. So I live a a fairly keto-like diet, and I I hate the word diet because it's a lifestyle change, right? And I love it. Do you really? Yeah. I love it, yeah. Wow. Okay, so what does it mean for you? Like you're you're eating very, very low carbohydrate and just high fat, and then do do you monitor it? Do you have like specific like goals that you try and reach in terms of your macros or anything? No, I'm pretty lazy to be fair. I just sort of know the things that I can eat and I just stick with that. So, and I guess that includes fasting. So I don't eat until I'm hungry, which is generally I start snacking, like I sort of snack on cheese or nuts either around lunchtime or even later, depending on what I'm doing. And so I really only have a proper one meal a day type scenario. But I'm not strict about it. Like if I'm going out for lunch, I'll have lunch kind of thing. Mm. So I fluctuate. But essentially, yeah, cheese, nuts. And then my evening meals are fairly normal. It's just without carbs, so meat and veg. So big fan of vegetables. I couldn't live without vegetables. But, you know, it's just all the low carby ones. So that's interesting. So you, like all your symptoms went away since you've started going keto? Yes and no, mostly. And it was one of those things that I started on and I was like, yeah, this is, I'm getting lots of relief here. And then I didn't realise that, you know, when you look at what you're doing, I sort of realised that I was eating naturally low histamine foods. Oh. Yeah. What are those foods? Mm. Or like what are the foods that are not low histamine, high well, histamine? There's either high histamine foods or triggers as well, you know, there's a term you use, liberator, histamine oh. liberator. Okay. So it's hard to actually pin down. And I think this is one of the, the big things with diet is that we often think about the last thing that went in our mouth and went, oh, I just got triggered. And that's been the biggest journey in realising that it's actually almost like a bath filling. You could be falling off the wagon and the things you shouldn't eat and you're sort of getting slightly triggered, slightly triggered. And then it's the blue cheese that tips you over the edge. So you go, oh, I can't eat blue cheese. That's kind of like a classic thing we do, right? Whereas what I was starting to learn was that some of those things you just have to eat in less amounts, and that was just, boom, the trigger. Or say something like a glass of wine might be your trigger. Yeah, for me, I could really, I really honed in on and was seeing that I had these little triggers. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's not just like this food's bad, this food's good. It's like yeah. maybe you can have some of this food, but if you have too much of it, it's going to push it over exactly. the edge and that's going to become the trigger that's going to exactly. make all the dominoes fall. That's interesting. Mm. Um, I suppose it's also quite interesting, you know, you're in such a research-based, science-y mm-hmm. field um, mm-hmm. and to have found that like natural food antidote is interesting. Now, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about, so I'm just gonna we're gonna move into this now. I really mm-hmm. want to talk about COVID. I really want to talk about your mm-hmm. research, and I also want to find out just about viruses and the immunity in general. So, for starters, what is a virus? They're teeny tiny, you know, so so tiny we can't see them, mm. but they need a host to do bad stuff. So they don't just live independently. Are they just like floating around in the air all the time? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, where they've been puffed out by a host, Mm. yeah, 
they have to have come from a host, whether that's a human or an animal. You know, there's viruses everywhere. Mm. We also have good viruses. You know, we have our microbiome is also critical. In fact, I think it's one of the most critical things to human health is our microbiome. And that's full of all sorts of microbes. So a virus needs a host to do its damage. Its goal is to replicate and pass on. And I guess a, a sensible or a clever virus, if you like, if you call it that, is one that's not killing the host. If you kill your host, then you're not going to pass on, are you? So that's why, you know, something like SARS-CoV-2, you know, has, has got the balance right as far as the virus goes, that it's not killing its host, but it's spreading prolifically. Yeah. So, okay, so it doesn't want to kill its host, but it makes its host sick. So why does it make mm. a host, why does it make the host sick? It makes the host sick because it needs the host to replicate. It hijacks your cells. It gets in, it infects a cell and hijacks your normal cellular machinery that you need. So your cells are getting hijacked by this virus. So instead of making the proteins your body needs, it makes its own proteins. Mm. And so it's doing its job. And of course, that's not great for your cells. And the more of that that's happening in your body, your immune system is like, hey, what's happening here? So our immune system essentially is tuned to see something that's foreign. And of course, a virus is foreign. And so then that piles in. You know, we have different lines of defense. We have the, the immediate sprinkler system that just goes, whoa, something's here, turns on to try and shut the virus down. But when that's not enough, because the virus is, you know, taking hold, then that's when our second line of defence, the really fine-tuned part of the immune system, kicks in. That part of the immune system is needed to literally go and hunt out and find a cell that's been hijacked and kill it so that the virus gets destroyed too. Or the other players in that sort of part of the response are also turning on another type of cell, our B cell, that makes the antibodies. So the antibodies are, again, very, very specific and tuned to the particular virus that's there. And sort of in simple terms, those antibodies stick to the outside of any virus that's into the body and therefore signals to the other types of immune cells to then seek it out, gobble it up and destroy it. It's an intricate little concert that goes on. It's amazing at how specific it is, yeah. Sounds like a full-on war. It's a total war. Yeah. In fact, we talk about these cells often as armies. So, you know, we have cells floating around our circulation all the time, surveilling. That's their job. And when we see a new threat, like SARS-CoV-2, there's very few cells in the body that their job is to seek out and find a brand new threat. And there might be only a, a few of them, so they have to make an army. So they clone themselves up, create a huge army, and off they go. So that literally is like a war going on. Wow. Mm. I like your point about how viruses, their mission is to replicate. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, like I've got this theory. I don't know if it's true. I obviously don't know if it's true, but I'm asking you if there's any thoughts around it. It seems to be that when a household gets sick, I've just noticed mm -hmm. this in my own household, so first of all, like not everyone seems to get sick at the same time. So with colds, flus, COVID, we got like it's staggered in our household. Mm -hmm. Is that because the virus is smart enough to know that you're in like close proximity to these other people? And so it doesn't want everyone to get sick at the same time because it wants some people to just be kind of carriers to then go out and still spread it, be well enough to spread it? The virus isn't that smart. Oh, damn, I had this. No. <laughs> You're telling me they can start wars inside your body, but they can't <laughs> figure that out? No, it's, it's the human body differences, I guess, that are more at play than, you know, there, there's uh. nothing smart about a virus, you know. Like, it, it's more that there's an, an initial host, right? So someone brings the virus in the house, and then the virus needs to replicate up. You know, it needs to hijack the body, 
or hijack the cell, get inside, replicate, make enough little viruses to start puffing out. So while that human's doing that, the other humans aren't getting infected. So that's what creates that cascade. Mm. There's still so much we don't know about how and why we're all different. I've heard loads of stories, like I'm doing a long COVID study, so I get people telling me their anecdotes that happen in their household. And we can have people who are they're sleeping in the same bed. They're like, oh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. No infection. But then the next time it comes in the house, they get infected. Mm. So there's just so much we don't know about why those things happen. But again, you know, there, there's lots of complexities in there depending on whether you're vaccinated or whether it's the first time you've seen it, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, there's so much more we need to understand about why these ha- things happen. But we, it's certainly, it's a mystery, especially when we hit before vaccinations, right? Like we heard loads of stories say when Delta hit, mm. where someone will be infected, this person wasn't, this person was. And that can come down to, as I say, that sprinkler system, the alert system that kicks off in our bodies. And children are better at that. So the first line of defence, the sprinkler system that just goes, quick, shut this down, is better in children. Oh, why's that? It's one of those things that they need a stronger sprinkler system. Because they're less likely to have been come into contact with the viruses previously, right, to have that second line. Yeah, so if a children's first line of defence is is doing a good job, that's great. And there are some viruses that we don't even know about. Like, for example, there's a herpes virus, CMV. We all hear about glandular fever, which is caused by Epstein-Barr virus, and I've got loads to say about that one. Um, And then another one, cytomegalovirus. I'd never heard of this. It's called CMV. I was like, what is it? Cytomegalovirus is a great, great name. I'd never heard of it until it kicked me. Really? Yep. I got it in my early 20s, and my GP was like, this is weird. You know, she only tested me for viruses, uh, you know, like, what's wrong with you? Because it was summery, and she was like, this isn't normal to be this sick, because, you know, historically we had seasonal flus. Yeah. So she sent me for tests, and it turned out I had CMV, and I'm like, what even is that? And I hadn't heard of it until I was in doing my PhD, And that was sort of, you know, one of the viruses that we would speak about. The reason we don't hear about it is it's because it's one of those childhood viruses that you barely even noticed your child get. They get infected, boring old thing, that's that. Mm. But what we don't hear much about, and I think this is where the field is going, this is where my research is going, and this is the part of immunity that I think we all take for granted, is that those viruses stay latent in our bodies forever. CMV, EBV, and a bunch of all the other gross herpes family viruses, they stay latent in us. And so our immune system is cleverly keeping them latent and asleep in our bodies. So those viruses stay on board forever. I call them our onboard viruses. So when something comes along like SARS-CoV-2, that's not an onboard virus. It doesn't stay with us. But it might be waking up those viruses that's what we're not thinking about. We're not thinking about the amazingness of our immune system that's constantly keeping us healthy from the latent viruses that decided to hijack us for life. So what are they doing just hanging around in our body? Like, Are they waiting to come out? So are, th- are these viruses yeah. that you, you have presented like symptoms of having it? Yeah. But then they stay in there and then they might come back later in life. Yes. Triggered by these other viruses coming in maybe. So it depends on the particular latent virus. So As I say, the herpes viruses are the family of them. You know, they've all got different names, and Epstein-Barr virus is a classic one. So that's our glandular fever, right? Mm. So many kids get Epstein-Barr virus. 
they don't present with symptoms. They might be asymptomatic. In fact, I think a large proportion of people have it asymptomatically. It's just the teenager who gets it that then presents and then gets kicked. And, you know, so, you know, we all know of the kids we went to school with that were wiped out for a Yeah, absolutely. End, right? yep. So that, that's sort of the scenario where that person got kicked by EBV. And so the complexities of how these viruses therefore live forever in us is just, it's incredible. But they essentially enter into a cell of our bodies and go into what we call a latent phase. So they're not infectious anymore. And, you know, why they do this? I mean, well, you know, that's their survival thing. But so sometimes when they sort of wake up, if you like, again, they're using, they're hijacking our system to then produce viral particles so that you then pass it on again. Sometimes that sort of scenario of waking up and, and infecting someone else might be, again, very mild, like you don't know what's happening. Yeah, so that's Epstein Bar does mm. that. So absolutely, you can pass it on, but, you know, most of the time our body's keeping it latent. The classic one that we see is chickenpox. Yeah. Okay. We all get chickenpox, or these days you can be vaccinated against it. What does it come out as? Shingles. Oh, okay. Mm. So that's what shingles is. Yeah. It's the adult form of chickenpox. Or, or do kids get shingles too? No, they get chickenpox. No, no, no. Yeah. It, it, so chickenpox is the virus, and then yeah. it hangs out latently in the body. Yeah. And then when it reawakens, it comes out as a herpes rash on your body. Right. Yeah. And we're hearing a lot of that post-COVID. And so what that's sort of telling us, because we can see shingles, it's sort of telling us, you know, is SARS-CoV-2 giving our immune system such a massive whack that the normal checks and balances that are in place keeping that virus asleep therefore gets unclamped and then you get a bout of shingles. Mm. That's kind of the area that we're really sinking our teeth into is understanding how intricate the immune system is to keep everything at bay like that. Yeah, it sounds kind of scary that there's all this stuff happening inside our bodies and there's these latent viruses. Mm. Well, and, and let's not forget, like EBV, like, so 90 to 95% of us have had it and it's known to cause cancer, MS and ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. And yet we're all down with that. <laughs> Is that right? So, yeah. Wow. So how does it go from being this virus that's not too bad to then causing all the yeah, cancer well, and... Well, exactly. So th those are all the things that we... I mean, there's lots of research in the cancer space, um, but essentially, yeah, you've got this virus that's hijacked your cells. And so... But bearing in mind these things are rare. You know, when you think 90 95% of us have carry EBV, mm. we still know it's very rare that you'll then get an event that goes on to cause cancer. It's just that we know that it can, right? Yeah. The good thing about SARS-CoV-2 is it's not an onboard virus that stays with us. But it's still, there's still those links there to, you know, is it upsetting our normal immune balance? Mm. And I think that's the big question. And it's the thing to not lose sight of because, yeah, I don't think there's an appreciation that we wander around amazingly suppressing everything. That's where health and wellness comes into this, you know, making sure that we're looking after our immune system, giving it the best chance of a good fight. Yeah, right. Yeah, because things like shingles, I think they've, I mean, I don't know much about this at all, but it seems like they come out when people are really run down. Like people mm. would get shingles when they're really run down or really stressed out mm -hmm. and they're just way out of whack, out of balance. Is that kind of... Yeah, and so obviously, you know, things like being run down and stressed, often we think of those as an emotional thing, but we know that there's always links to actually molecular signals 
stress hormones and all the rest of it that kick off. So it's, it's the same sort of thing. So yes, you can get the shingles and things like that from being run down or getting whacked by SARS-CoV-2, you mm. know, like, and that's the thing, you know, that they're just, it's a different trigger. Sure, but it's right? the same sort of thing happening in your body yeah. where it's getting way out of balance. Yeah. So cold sores is, is another example, right? Mm. You know, so that's another virus that stays with us. And the sun is the insult. You know, you always hear of people who might be prone to cold sores and it's the summer months because UV light is a big trigger for cold sores. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that either. I thought that was when people got run down and they would get um, cold well, sores. They're, they're one and the same, right? Like right. Sun, it depends what your rundown signal is. Mm. Is it an external stressor like the sun? Is it an external trigger or internal, if you like, by getting kicked by a virus? Or is, you know, the act of being run down is that, again, there's still molecular signals going on, right? Like whether that's lack of sleep, poor diet, you know, all of those things yeah. come into play when we think of being run down or stressed. You know, stress isn't benign. You know, we're sending signals around our body that we're in stress, right? Yeah, okay. So back to immunity. What um, mm. What is natural immunity? Yeah, the term natural immunity is sounds like we should do things naturally versus unnaturally, which is kind of a bizarre way of thinking about it. So natural immunity, if you like, is the fact that our immune system sees the threat and shuts it down. And yet, sure, there's tons of viruses and things that we see as children that are not directly harmful, right? I mean, and even these ones that we live on board with, you know, as it, that, you know, they're not serious at the time, but yet we need to still be mindful of them, as I've just described. But at the same time, there are absolutely catastrophic viruses, right? You know, that's why we have childhood vaccinations against measles, polio, all of these absolutely catastrophic illnesses. And you don't want to ever be in a situation where you want to see those viruses. So, you know, a vaccination at that point is still building a natural type of immunity because all we do with a vaccine is mimic an immune response. And it's one of those things that when you strip it back and you sort of said, oh, if there was a medical intervention that we could invent that just showed the body what to do, no drugs, no off-target effects, just show the body what to do, what would that be? And I'll be like, hmm, I know exactly what that is. You know, that that's what vaccination is. It's so clever in that, you know, it's so specific. What we don't know enough about is why we all respond differently or why some of us make a great immune response and some of us don't. You know, there's so many complexities in there. Mm. But the natural part is, you know, it is our body naturally making an immune response, whether it's seeing the virus or not. And it's just that while you're seeing a virus, that could be causing catastrophic damage inside your body. So it's best to do it in the safest way possible. Mm. I'm interested in like... Does like getting the cold and the flu, does it help to build up your immune system so that then you're less likely to get severe symptoms from, say, future colds and flus or things like COVID? Yeah, it's a weird thing, the whole building one's immunity concept. Yeah, because like, I'm, I'm just thinking like, this is another little household theory that we have in our household. Yeah. My, my wife doesn't usually get colds or flus or hadn't in the past, mm-hmm. um, I guess like 10 years or so, she reckons she hasn't had the flu. And then... Uh, when she got COVID, she got, got hit by it like for a couple of days. Whereas I like get colds and flus more frequently than her and it mm. didn't affect me so badly at all. And similarly, with she got the flu this year as well and so did I and it didn't affect me so bad either. Yeah, it's, it's an odd one. Again, 
some of our viruses, you know, like some of these species, like, for example, SARS-CoV-2 is a coronavirus and some of our colds are coronaviruses, you know, like the boreal things, but, you know, SARS-CoV-2 was much worse. So a lot of the early research was actually trying to understand whether our historical exposure to colds was good or bad, you know, because it can go both ways. There wasn't any strong evidence in any one direction in the end as to, you know, whether we could do really well defined studies to get a full understanding of that. Um, But certainly those sorts of things were being questioned. There's sort of two things at play here, like when you sort of talk about, you know, just getting colds all the time, you know, build immunity. And I would sort of almost flip it and sort of say, is that because your immune system, you know, like you may be exposed and arguably maybe the better immune system is the person that doesn't know they're constantly getting colds or flus, right? Mm, yeah, Be- that- because your immune system shuts it down before you get symptoms. And the, the short of it is, is we don't understand, we don't know. And I would be the in the same situation where my health and wellness pathway started because, you know, I was in this constant state of allergy, you know, so I was just constantly congested. And then, you know, in my early 20s, I got CMV. And then I think a few years later, I got reactivation of chickenpox and I got shingles. And I'm like, I'm in my 20s. What's all this about? So I was that person who was constantly hammered and hammered and hammered. And as soon as I started on my health and wellness journey and had this newfound respect for what a microbiome was and why that's so important and how the diet shapes that, blah, blah, blah. I then have lived my life being that person that sounds bulletproof. Oh, I never get these things. I don't get the flu. I don't get colds. But again, when when SARS-CoV-2 hit, it was kind of like, oh, I've got to frame that differently because it's not like you have a gatekeeper up your nostrils punching it out with, with a glove when it cruises up your nose. You know, it's more about maybe some of us have a better sprinkler system that shuts it down so we don't get symptoms. You know, there were tons of people who would get this virus asymptomatically. That's what we're intrigued about, right? Why Mm. some of us shut it down quickly. So I would sort of argue that if you're the person who's symptomatic all the time, is that because you're having to fight hard each time? We we don't really know. Mm. And whether that gives you any better or or worse immunity, we also don't know. But essentially what we're tending to see and hear more and more about, and I think that's what we just need to be mindful of this virus is, you know, because it's new and we don't really know what, havoc it's wreaking, even if we have it mildly, what we need to be mindful of is we don't know, understand the trajectory of how long we might be in a recovery phase for because it's silent. You know, we don't know what kind of little army and concert that went on in our bodies, even if it was mild. And so therefore it's that sort of respect that we need to rest through that and ask the research questions. How long does it take to go back to kind of a state of full recovery? And that might be during that trajectory is when you might get exposed to the flu and boom, you get that really badly. Or your your rhinovirus and you get that really badly. You know, all the things that are floating around every Mm. winter. You know, so there's so many questions we don't have the answers to. It's a very complex playing field. And especially, again, in that context, especially going through waves of this virus where, again, in a household, your partner could be completely nailed by it, you're fine, don't get it, and you're like, woohoo, bulletproof. And then six weeks later, it's your turn. That's exactly what happened to me. I thought I was yeah. bulletproof. Yeah, totally. I was bragging about it. Yeah. And then, yeah, six weeks later. Mm. What about kids putting things in their mouth when they're little, you know, inoculating their microbiome and building up an immunity that way? And is that a thing? It is a thing. So microbiomes are so important. 
underappreciated important. You know, like there's a lot of research now going on from basically from birth or even in utero, you know, and that it takes a lot to change your microbiome if it's in a good way or a bad way, it takes a lot to change it. And I think it's one of the biggest things in health and wellness that we can be impatient about, actually, is one way I would put it. Let's go back to yeah, children. Yes, it's important for building your your microbiome, but you know, exposure to bugs and things. Obviously, we still don't want, you know, on purpose bad bugs, but natural bugs are everywhere. You know, we've got microbiome on our skin, you know, like all of those things are healthy things if they're the right species, right? You know, it's not like, oh, here's some salmonella, have some of that, see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like here's it's, this raw chicken juice for you yeah, to drink. Like, see how that goes. But no, it's, it's more like all our natural and our species and our environment are really important to help build up your microbiome and, and that's safe way. But I think we're hearing more and more about that also in the context of over-sterilizing, right? And when I sort of spoke about my journey and my, you know, my skin being an issue, one of the first things I did also with my skin was like, what on earth am I putting on my skin, right? So we take for granted that we've got species living on our skin too. And it's our biggest immune organ, you know, like, so anything you put on your skin can seep in there. So that's really important too. And so that goes, you know, that's in the same vein of sterilizing and harsh chemicals and things like that. So like when I was at my worst, I could feel my skin react to the fumes of, say, bleach. It's a great way to get out of cleaning, you know, wow. get away yeah. from the bleach products and things like that. But, you know, we've come a long way since then. So all of that sort of stuff is now very topical, you know, to not over-sterilise and, and all those sorts of things. But back when I was first going down this path, you know, I, I think I was importing probiotics when I first sort of heard about all this kind of stuff. Mm. So I think it's it's just taken a long time to get a full understanding of. And so the research is still coming through. So microbiome, I think, is the centre, the core to good health. It absolutely is core for our immune system. And a good immune system, good microbiome is absolutely central to our mental health as well. You know, it's all so, so important. And we don't really have good tools or understanding of how to reshape that if it's out of whack. Mm. I think that's where it's still a huge challenge. There's amazing animal studies of, like, I think the first ones were like fat mouse, skinny mouse, swap the, the microbiome, and you could absolutely influence the health and wellness of that animal. If we think of viruses, I remember a study early on that showed giving a mouse, infecting them with the flu the influenza virus, with and without antibiotics. Because we all know antibiotics is for bacteria, right? Mm. What does giving antibiotics do? Messes with your microbiome, right? So in this particular study, it was just groundbreaking early on to sort of show that if you gave antibiotics to a mouse infected with influenza, what happened? They got worse flu symptoms because you just killed off their good bacteria. So it's a huge balancing game. So Yes, it's incredibly important, and I think, you know, many of us lived through the era of, oh, you've got a sniffle, here's some antibiotics. Mm. I'd like to think that we've come through that, but it's still a little bit prevalent. You know, oh, you've got a juicy, chesty cough, you probably need antibiotics. Do you? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, there's lots of things at play there, but the key thing is absolutely a healthy microbiome. We just don't know enough about how to truly reshape or correct our microbiome in a way that humans want to deal with because it could take years. And I almost feel like my journey has been so long and I couldn't tell you how long it's taken to reshape my microbiome because mm. I'm just sort of patient about it maybe. I don't know. 
Sorry, just cutting in here. I'm just going to share a little quick message from our sponsor, Foundspace, and also fill you in on how you can win that sauna. Now, as a listener of Well and Good, you're probably someone who prioritizes your health and well-being. Well, have you ever tried an infrared sauna before, or have you even considered having one in your own home? I have a sauna at my place, and it's been the best investment in my health. I seriously think it has been. Now, since 2008, Foundspace has installed thousands of -of state-of-the-art low-EMF infrared saunas across Australia, and they now deliver and install anywhere in New Zealand. An infrared sauna is such a powerful health tool because it addresses multiple fundamental areas of your health in one session. They help you to de-stress and sleep well, manage your weight, find relief from chronic pain, and recover efficiently from workouts, plus heaps more. And they don't just sell you a sauna, the Foundspace sauna specialists are ready to chat about your health challenges and goals, help you find the perfect sauna for your home, and then integrate it into your routine to get the best results. To enter the chance to win your very own Foundspace sauna, just hit the link in the show notes. The show notes can be found in the description of this podcast on whatever app you're listening to this podcast on. So go on, get entering. The competition is only open to New Zealand residents and entries close 31st of October, 2022. Now back to the chat. Just going back to your bit about antibiotics, I sort of, I recently um, did a little bit of reading up on that as well because one of our kids got a bit sick and we were like, went to the doctor and the doctor prescribed some antibiotics and I'm very much of the mindset that I'd really antibiotics are a last resort for me. I think they're mm-hmm. a wonderful tool, but mm-hmm. only if you need them, right? Because of what you just said, it messes yes. up your microbiome. And so then I started looking into it and just being like, I just want to make sure that you know she needs to be taking these mm-hmm. these antibiotics. And then I yeah, I did, I did a bit of reading on it and found that there was some sort of percentage of um, doctors in the states that just prescribe antibiotics for viruses, which is, a, yep. you know, obviously we should not be doing for mm-hmm. what you just mentioned. And I looked on the CDC website and the main thing that they talk about with antibiotics was like, make sure you actually need antibiotics. Mm-hmm. The whole, the, mm-hmm. the biggest recommendation there was to basically try and avoid using antibiotics unless you mm. actually need to. I was like, oh, I'm quite surprised by that, but it was it makes Absolutely. total sense. Absolutely, because mm. they're totally important and life-saving when they're needed. But I definitely grew up in the era of, oh, I think you need antibiotics, and you would take them. So I'd like to think that that is going to continually change. And when I used to sort of question this, I wondered whether it was that whole, you know, I'm very sick here and pressure that a patient wanted something. Mm. It's a baffling one because I've definitely heard those conversations where someone was like, you know, chesty cough, blah, 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 off I went, well, I suppose you want antibiotics. And it's like... Wow. Mm. Are we still doing that? Yeah. So, yeah, and, and you hear things like recurrent ear infections, or, and the recurrent theme seems to start to happen. Uh, like when we think of microbiome, we, we know a lot about the gut, right? Mouth microbiome is still very important. In your upper earways, all of those sorts of things. I'm a big fan of the Bliss probiotics. Yep, I've used those. They're a magic bullet. The little lozenges? Yep. Yeah. But it's super important. You know, again, you get a sore throat, right? mostly viral. And what do we do? We want antibiotic lozenges. We want antibiotics throat. You know, you you find a lozenge that doesn't say Mm antibiotic on it. And so in my journey, again, I'm like, why are you doing this? So I've got a sore throat and there's a virus kicking my butt in there. And I want to go and put antibiotic something in my mouth. My mouth has a microbiome. It has good bugs. I've been sort of down that path for decades. And I was like, I want to go and find a lozenge that doesn't have an antiseptic-y, kill-everything-in-my-mouth scenario. Mm. So that's where I landed on 
blessed. So, so if you if you have a sore throat, then that's what you would do. You would take one of those bliss lozenges. Oh, I've been doing it for decades. Great. Yes, absolutely. And again, so as I spoke about EBV, Epstein-Barr, you know, a classic one is your, your throat lymph nodes swell. Well, for many viruses, or tonsillitis, you name it, shove these in your mouth. I think it's something like you're allowed one every four hours or something like that. Uh, you know, I even risk death by sleeping with one in my mouth if I'm sick, <laughs> but I don't get sick, remember, because I'm bulletproof. Exactly. Yes. But that has been, over the last 10 years, solid, they're always in my handbag. They'll be in my handbag today. That's I, great. They are amazing. So part of what they're designed to do is strep throat. You know, there's a mas- magic little bug that populates your mouth. But I, I do it with everything. It's not like I see what's wrong. or Well, as I say, I don't actually get sick. You take the edge off and you get rid of what's happening. Because to me, you know, so a microbiome is all about swamping out the bad guys. And what we tend to reach for when we have a sore throat is this whole bunch of blast and kill everything in your mouth. It's bizarre. Mm. And so the flip side to that is put something good and healthy to, to swamp out so there's no space for a virus to take hold. And it works. That's great. It works. That's your mouth microbiome. So yeah. with your gut microbiome, I mean, you've been through a bit of a journey with it, right? So mm. did you, I think probably fasting, because fasting is a good way to kind of like clear out a lot of bad bacteria in your gut. Is that right? And then potentially you'd then want to repopulate with some good bacteria? Yeah, I mean, I don't know the specific science behind what fasting's doing with respect to your microbiome per se. Mm. Not entirely sure there, but the act of fasting is helping trigger off your clear-out pathway, Mm -hmm. you know, like as in all your sort of natural cellular defences where it sort of kicks in to clean out bits and pieces. You know, that's half of the health benefits of fasting and sort of switching into survival, you know, all those sort of clean-up mode, right? Yeah. So, yeah, and then so as I say, yeah, I, I do that every day. The key thing for me that, you know, I often hear people talk about in the context of fasting is, you know, oh, this is so hard. As soon as you're not reliant on carbs because your metabolism switched, it's dead easy. Mm. You know, like it's so easy. Absolutely. And I also think it's a psychological thing as well. We're just um, we're in a habit of eating at certain times of day when we're not necessarily hungry, um, but we're yeah. just used to it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, and of course, everyone is different as well. Like that's the thing, I guess, a classic thing in health and wellness. What works for one person doesn't necessarily work for the other. And it's all about finding your balance, mm. I think. People may think what I do is extreme. I don't at all. I think it's great. You know, like I love the power of not being driven by food. Like because mm. then I can be busy out and about somewhere and I'm not like, oh, where's my next meal coming from? And you've got so much more time in the day. I know. Yeah. With your microbiome, have you in the past or do you currently consciously try and repopulate it with healthy bacteria? And how do you do that? I think over the decades, like literally decades, I, I think, as I said, I had was buying online because there were none even in this country. So I, I did go down that pathway of supplementing with probiotics. Whether it ever helped, don't really know, because I think it's a difficult one, you know, and even when there's been scientific studies, they often show up saying, meh, they do nothing. Yeah. So, and, and fine, right? Potentially it's a combination because the science never seems to hold up. You always have to be cautious of how studies are done as well. Sometimes I think, especially in, in dietary type studies, sometimes I think they're too short. They expect the world on like a, a one-month program or something. You're like, is that enough time to make a difference? And that's why I sort of feel like microbiome is can potentially be a long journey. So, yes, over the years I've taken the whole 
probiotics thing. I guess one of the first things that came through after the probiotic phase was you need prebiotics to make sure, you know, it's one thing to shove in the right bacteria, but if there's nothing there for them to thrive on that they feed off, if you like, as in the right diet, then they're not going to thrive. And do we need to kill off the species that might be populating? So I think there's still so much to really uncover about how to do that. But, yeah, I've been down that journey myself. And then, yeah, on the whole, I kind of gave up supplementing with probiotics. Through any colds or anything like that, I I may have done. But as I said, again, remember, I'm bulletproof, so I don't get colds. So things like, yeah, diet is absolutely important. Mm. The key thing is that we just don't know enough about exactly how to do that quickly. And I think that's where humans are probably just impatient. I think we might want to try something and think nothing changes and go, oh, that didn't work. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that's um, a common thread with a lot of, with health in general, whether it's diet or exercise or meditation, you know, like a lot of these things, if we start a new regime, a new uh, a new way of eating, a new exercise program, whatever, like we want results fast because mm. we just, we're so conditioned to want that. And so that's why I think a lot of people give up or we lose interest and we, um, you know, because that feedback loop is, is a bit too slow. It's a bit too yeah. long for us. And in health and wellness, you know, it's if you look at health and wellness versus, you know, classical medicine, pills act fast kind exactly. of Exactly, yeah. You just kind of have to accept that there is no magic pill to do this and you can, you know, at least get some control back or deem to get that health and wellness control. But it just takes time. Mm. And, you know, and we just don't know what that length of time is depending on what your goal is or what your health condition that you're trying to, to get under control is. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so we talked about microbiome. What are some other ways that people can boost their immune system? You know, you hear a lot about vitamin C, mm. vitamin D. I really want to know how vitamin D plays into it. And zinc, those are three that come to my mind. Yep. How do they all play and are there some others? Yeah, so it's one of those things that, you know, some people sort of cringe about the term boosting your immune system and, and all of that because there's no magic booster button per se. And especially when we, when we talk about, you know, generating immunity and, you know, like I said, whether it's exposure to a virus or even exposure to a vaccine to generate the good immune response, the way I prefer to refer to that is making sure that you have your immune building blocks. Because, yes, if you're la- lacking them, can you expect your immune system to work efficiently if you don't have them? So, yes, all of those elements are critical. And that that's the way I sort of think of it is that, Make sure that you have all these. Diet's the best place to get them right, always. Yeah. Like so, for me, even through you know where we are right now with COVID, I took myself along to my GP and said, "Can you give me a a full screen because I want to understand you know where I'm at with my immunity, and just make sure I didn't have any deficiencies. I wanted to know that, and check for my zinc, vitamin D, vitamin B, all of those sorts of things. Mm. And you know, I was at the lower end of zinc, so I thought, okay, I might need to top that up. So that's the way I think of it. You know, like as in if you do have a healthy immune system, you're not going to be super boosted into a superhuman Mm. by shoving as many supplements as you can into your body. Like it's more that you absolutely need critical building blocks. And if they're in place, then you're in the best position possible if you get infected. But equally, if you do get infected or, you know, you go through an illness, that could also be a time point to go into full supplementation mode because you may have been depleted in ways that we don't understand mm. or we don't know. You know, we heard a lot about vitamin D deficiencies in people who got hit hard by COVID 
when you're looking afterwards, you don't know whether that person was deficient first and that's why they got COVID bad and therefore now have a deficiency. We don't know enough about what's going on. And if it ends up being true that, you know, getting infected with SARS-CoV-2 sort of is a widespread sort of knock to the immune system and it means it's working hard to get back to its equilibrium and, and recover, you know, maybe that is the period of time where we need to sort of focus on making sure we've got all our building blocks. We don't know enough, but those core features, vitamin C, D, B, and all the rest of it, yeah, absolutely important. Mm. But still best to always try and get that from your diet. Yep. And then if you've had a big knock and a hit and you're in recovery mode, then, you know, see if, if that's a good time to up those sorts of things. My thoughts are that you'll, um, if you come down with a bit of a, a virus and you take those supplements, I reckon that it will make your recovery shorter, mm-hmm. meaning you won't be sick as long with symptoms. Yeah, I mean, it can't hurt, right? Mm. Like, And that's the way I've always seen it too. And, you know, especially coming into winter or when we headed into winter, like that's when I was like, right, you know, here we go and COVID's still here and, you know, let, let's supplement if I need to and all the rest of it. Um, and as we know, you know, we get vitamin D from the sun. So, mm. you know, that starts to drop away. And, you know, we hear a lot about uh, there being deficiencies and people don't know that they're deficient. Mm. So absolutely. So and a lot of these things could shorten recovery. I think it's just that we don't have, you know, solid data on it. Mm. But, you know, if it's cheap and easy to do and you feel like your recovery shorter, great, you mm. know. Yeah. What about things like hot and cold therapy, like sauna and also cold water immersion? And there's talk about cold water immersion helping to boost your immune system, or I guess support your immune system. And support's a good word. Support, yeah, <laughs> we'll use support your immune system. And then I think with the hot, it's also to do with if you're frequently breathing hot air, like in through your nasal cavity and in your mouth and everything, you it's harder for a virus to latch on, or that's what I've heard. Is there any truth to any of this? I don't know any of the hardcore science behind the hot and cold things other than, you know, that there are people that speak highly of doing these extremes for health and wellness and that it is beneficial. There must be something in it, absolutely. I know the the heat thing, you know, there was, I think this was spoken about in, back in 2020, about humidity being a player or not. You know, there was like, why the hot countries not as hit as hard and all right. the rest of it. That's worth looking into, though, you know. Mm. I should have a deeper dive into that. Yeah, the hot countries sort of thing. Like, why is it seasonal? Yeah. So, like, is it seasonal because it's colder and the virus is uh, handled better and, you know, they're easier to spread in cold temperatures? Or is it to do with vitamin D? We naturally get more sunlight during summer. Like, what is causing us to get sicker in winter? The seasonal thing is because we hang out inside and great humid virus spreading environments it mm. can definitely contributes to the seasonal element i think oh, and we saw this with flu right flu, we didn't get flu last year because it wasn't allowed in the country you know it didn't right, book so, its tickets here so is that <laughs> like this winter has been pretty hectic for a yep. lot of people just mm-hmm. sickness after sickness after sickness yep so is that because we didn't expose ourselves to viruses that were already in our community through lockdowns or like you just said is it because they didn't come into our country from other people, or is it a combo? Yeah, it's a bit of a combo there because, you know, like when you literally put a break on, like shutting the borders, then, you know, when things come back in the country, they come back in with a vengeance, like as as a wave. Mm. You know, normally with borders open, you know, people are travelling all the time, so you'd bring back flu from 
Brazil or wherever you're getting your flu from. You know what I mean? Like the flu will be coming in, you know, from other countries or all of these respiratory viruses, you know. Mm. We're constantly being fed these viruses all year round. So if you put the brakes on, everything's locked up, then, yeah, as I say, they'll come on the next plane in and then everyone gets them all at the same time. Yeah. You know, like so instead of it being waves and cycling through, you just literally get it all the time. So we saw that with RSV that hits kids hard. I think that was last year when the borders with Australia opened. Boom, in came RSV. Yeah, we got so, it. We got it in our household. I, yeah. I got it and it hit me pretty hard. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It got, got my kids and they were down for like a week or so. And then I was like, it was a nasty flu for me for a, probably like two days of fever. And then um, and mm. then I wasn't right for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So those sort of passions we've generated, if you like, from border closures. So instead of it being sort of a more natural, they're coming in and out all the time. But obviously, yeah, a lot of the seasonality can come from human behaviours as mm. well. You're more likely to be in closed quarters, spreading viruses. Yeah. Yeah. What about sleep? How does sleep play a part in immune response and immune oh, that, system? That's huge too. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Good restoration is critical for Everything in Everything. your body. Everything. Yeah. It underpins all aspects of health, really. Absolutely. And yeah. and I think, you know, we can often take that for granted in the context of, you know, like if you hear people who have been severely impacted by COVID, now have long COVID, it's sleep disruption is, is central to that. And, you know, you can have extreme fatigue and sleep doesn't restore because everything's out of whack. Because, again, we're still trying to understand what exactly has been the full body disruption, but we absolutely know sleep disturbance is at the centre of it. And if you're completely fatigued and, like, bone-numbing, you know, that's not exhaustion, it's fatigue, and then you can't sleep, it's like the world's worst torture, right? Mm. So you're just getting no restoration. Yeah, so sleep's really, really important. So we've all been pretty sick this winter. What about next year? Are we going to be better off because we've all been a bit sick this year, do you think? Has that sort of boosted our, I mean, supported our immune <laughs> <Of> system? <laughs> Has it made us stronger and more resilient for next year, do you think? Or will there be less viruses floating around? Like, what do you reckon? My prediction is actually it's just going to keep getting worse. Oh, don't so, say that. Because we're still understanding what SARS-CoV-2 is doing to our immune systems. Right. And if we don't understand the full trajectory of how long it takes to get back to full restoration, we may become more susceptible. You know, if you talk about boosting your immune system, we drop that word. If we want to restore our immune system, that's probably the key word here, mm. is, you know, how long is it to get to restoration to back to where we were? And we don't know because we don't know how much damage this virus is doing, even when we're not very severely impacted. We just don't know. Mm. And I think we'll start to see those patterns emerge. Are we going to see more shingles? Are we going to see more glandular fever? Are we going to see more RSV? You know, all of those standard viruses. But as I said, where I'm headed with the research is that reawakening of our latent viruses. And, you know, is it that we're going to see more shingles in younger people? Because we know that, you know, it, it can be quite common. As we age, our immune system starts failing us, essentially. It's just old and decrepit and doesn't keep control of everything. And I, and I guess that's one of the things that we take for granted. We, we don't realise that half of that trajectory is that as our immune system is getting older, it's those onboard viruses that become more opportunistic. You know, that's what might be happening. You know, that it's our natural immune suppression that we're always doing that then starts to weaken. So that's where SARS-CoV-2 could be weakening our strength of our immune system through the ability to 
keep everything under control. And we just don't know enough. I mean, obviously this is, you know, this is honing in on people that are getting hard hit because, you know, with all viruses, it's usually a minority that are getting hit. But at the same time, we don't know the long-term impacts. And so, Mm. you know, the message is still, you know, try and keep your body healthy. Don't think that repeat of infections is strengthening your immune system in any way. It's quite the opposite. We're seeing from the large-scale studies people that get repetitively infected their health risks are going up. Mm. Heart disease, cardiac risks, all of these things. This virus clots your blood. Oh, God, that doesn't sound very nice. So just because it causes severe, you know, hospitalisation in some, in a very small minority, and, you know, but we know that those severe triggers are to do with upsetting our clotting pathways. So it can still happen in us in a mild way, if you like, an, an invisible way, and we don't know how long it takes to recover that. It's not just a respiratory virus. No. It's a systemic virus that can get into all sorts of places. And it's not just a respiratory virus. It's not just like a flu or just like the cold. It just isn't. So why is that? Why is it different than than the normal flu? First of all, it's a completely different virus. Yeah. And we know that this particular Virus, you know, it's it's got. We've all seen the picture of it, right? It's a little spiky ball, and that spike protein on the outside seems to be sort of really good at triggering, at causing havoc. You know, it needs that little spike protein is what attaches onto our cells to help it get inside, but also it sort of seems to trigger the the clotty pathways as mm. well. I'm not sort of talking in the sense that you know everyone gets clots and suddenly dies. It's not that kind of dramatic. It's more that there's an upset in those pathways, and we don't know why and how long it takes to resolve that. And, you know, what we are surmising in long COVID is that maybe it's those sorts of pathways that aren't resolving and that's what's causing the slow recovery or, for some people, no recovery. So, what, so like, from that, you know, that initial discussion about viruses, their goal is to just infect the host and then replicate and spread. Yeah. Why are they hitting us so hard with SARS-CoV? As opposed to, say, a common cold, which, you know, doesn't hit the host too bad, but it'll spread pretty easily. Yeah. Well, it's doing its job. It's just leaving the host in a bad way, right? Mm. But we we still don't know how many people it's going to impact. You know, we still think it could be as high as 10 to 30%. And, you know, 30%... What, what's that? Sorry, with long COVID? With long COVID, right. yeah. And that the number fluctuates, absolutely. But did you know that athletes are a group of people that are getting long COVID. Yeah, I did know that. Um, yeah. I've got, you had some friends who have had long COVID or have it. Very interested yeah. to know what your thoughts are on that. Because it, like, is it because they are just exercising at a, a level that is so high and putting a lot of stress on their body and that's that kind of throwing them out of balance? Like what's going on? I, I think what that's telling us again about health and wellness is that, you know, we seem to always want to fit into the one size fits all, like as in that a particular diet and exercise regime is healthy for every single human, right? Yeah. You know, so I would sort of go the extreme, you know, or if you want to go full devil's advocate on this, is that you can't exercise your way out of it of an unhealthy state that your body is not suited to. And maybe this virus is uncovering that. You know, mm. like the person who is susceptible to this, maybe their m- metabolic state that they're, you know, thinks healthy is not necessarily. But, I mean, that's just one way of looking at mm. it. So it's not necessarily what is happening here. But I still think that's part of this big puzzle, right? You know, like the human state is, is often kind of like, okay, I have this diet and I exercise and these two things make me healthy. 
But are they? That's interesting. It's like definitions of, of health and fitness. People say health and fitness. It's just you know, health and fitness. It's one thing. Mm. But health and fitness is totally separate. You can be yeah. you can be fit and very unhealthy from a, a metabolic point of view. Exactly. Your inflammation could be through the roof. And I think we don't know enough about that. I think, you know, there's this perception that if you look great on the outside, you must be healthy. Yep. That's a big question as well. And that can come down to all sorts of things. And so I think one of the elements there is what we're putting in is our fuel. You know, some bodies may not be accustomed or can cope with high carbohydrate loading, for example, if, you know, well, I I eat all this carbohydrate because, you know, I then burn it off with exercise. But maybe that is too much for a particular person. And that's the thing, you know, we're just so different, right? Mm. And so I think we forget some of those things. You know, a lot of people see health and fitness that you exercise to maintain your weight, which I think is backwards. Mm. Your diet should reflect the energy output, not the other way around. You know, we shouldn't be exercising to maintain our weight. We should be eating to maintain ourselves. And if we then exert a lot, add more food kind mm. of thing. That's a great way to look at it. That's how I've always seen it. Mm. It shouldn't be that exercise is to keep your weight down. Exercise is part of your wellness, absolutely, but it shouldn't be because to counteract what you're eating. Mm. Yep. So, And that sort of plays into the whole picture, like I think. Not everyone is going to be healthy metabolically on the inside. And that come, and when I say healthy on the inside, I, I mean microbiome. Like, you know, everyone's going to have a different type of microbiome to start with, and maybe it's going to take a long time for some people to shape theirs. You know what I mean? Like, as in if, we, yep. if our microbiome is shaped from such a young age and then we are attuned to have a particular health and wellness program that we want to have, it might not be the right one. For all of us, even though we might feel great. Like one particular example I have of this, I think, is where, you know, we so often hear about the connection of exercise and mental health. I still don't believe that you can exercise your way out of that if your diet is not right, because your diet is going to influence your microbiome and your microbiome is going to affect your mental health as well. So it's so complicated. Complicated and interrelated as well. Totally. They all relate, to, you know, influence each other. Um, it's one big system. And, you know, yeah, someone was asking me the other day, like, what do I do for my physical health? And then the next question was, what do I do for my, my mental health? And it would, to be honest, they were all the same answers because yeah. I, I, they all play into each other, you yeah. know? The centerpiece is the microbiome. Yeah, there we go. It really is. And what you do around that is different for everyone. But I think the microbiome is so essential to this mm. because immune system, mental health, everything. I want to talk a little bit about long COVID. So what exactly is long COVID and mm -hmm. why do some people get long COVID? I think people who are susceptible is not an obvious reason, I think. Mm. Some people sort of automatically think, oh, comorbidities, therefore, if you've got some underlying condition, you're, you're more likely to get this. If anything, we're saying the hypersensitive people not emotionally, hypersensitive <laughs> immune <laughs> systems, um, like as in allergy-type scenarios, allergy and asthma. And even with asthma, it's not because it's a lung thing. The lung thing's a bit of a red herring in all this. Right. But we don't really know why people are getting it. But my hypothesis, and it's not my personal, just me thinking this, it's more, you know, drawing on the literature coming through. But as I said, I think it is relating to how well our immune systems uh, suppressing our onboard viruses and therefore how well, how bad, you know, the virus unclamps that and why we do and don't, or some, why some people recover and some people don't. So 
a big study that just came out this week, and it's a preprint, and we always, uh, with preprints, so it's not peer-reviewed yet, but we can assess that based on the scientists behind it, you know, whether or not it's likely to hold. Just on that, sorry, quickly, yes. what, how does something become peer-reviewed? So how, how many peers is it reviewed by? What's that, what happens? Yeah, so peer review, and yeah, COVID changed everything a bit in this regard, especially with COVID literature. We needed to get it out really quickly. Mm. So we have um, what we call preprint servers. So you, you write your paper and you upload it. And then in, in 2020, it was a pylon scenario. So everyone was just like, that's rubbish or that's, oh, yeah. and because it was trying to get information out as fast as possible. And generally speaking, you've polished your paper too. You've done everything possible and you're releasing it because peer review traditionally took so long. So what happens is you submit to a journal and then they send it out to experts to review it. Depends on the journal, two or three, something like that. And then they assess it and then it gets published. But that pathway used to be so slow. And we pay a lot of money for that too. It's, it's, it's crazy politics and science. So it was very important early on in the pandemic to get information out there. And then it just turned to, to custard a bit because there was rubbish being published. And you have to be mindful of that because it's public. You can go and read it, dissect it and all the rest of it. Then it became an unpopular thing to do because you didn't want to be jumped on too quickly. Mm. Equally, if it's controversial or a new, well, not so much controversial, but you know, something that should be scrutinised, you know, you shouldn't necessarily put something out there unless you you have had proper peer review. So in this particular case, these are world leaders in viral immunology and tons of the leading papers in COVID already. And in this particular paper, what I honed in on, and I was like, yeah, this is where I'm headed, is that in their long COVID cohort, they showed signs of viral reactivation. So they looked at VZV, which is our chickenpox shingles virus, and our Epstein-Barr virus, our EBV. And they sh- saw that there was viral reactivation. And as I said, it's one of these areas that's so neglected because, you know, it's the boring old virus we all have. We don't have clinical tools to track this because nobody cares. You know, like even quite often you can go to your GP if you understand, you know, like you might be someone that knows that you've sort of fluctuated through life having a viral reactivation, you know, because people do know if they're that person that they got glandular fever and then they get got something similar later on. And mm. depending, and in fact, it's actually more often in the health and wellness space where um, there's understanding that this, these viruses reactivate. But the clinical tools don't exist. And what I mean by that is, when you get an antibody test, you know, to sort of tell you whether you've historically had something, your result is a yes, no answer. Whereas we can tell a bit more if we know what the levels are, like as in what the levels were in 2020, today, or to what they are today and what they are in the future. Because if they go up, it sort of tells you that your immune system's woken up and you've made more antibodies because the virus has woken up. And... Like when I've spoken to people about this and, you know, and why we don't have this diagnostically, the answer can be, oh, well, it means nothing. And it's like, well, you might have thought it meant nothing. Let's revisit that. So that was part of the puzzle. And, you know, with all research, we want replication and we want to dive deeper into that. But this paper is showing us that there's at least a signal there to say that maybe part of the problem is EBV awakening. And it would make sort of sense because the symptoms of long COVID are, you know, extreme fatigue, there's brain fog, uh, which is cognitive dysfunction really. It's not, you know, brain fog sort of seems a bit sort of benign, but it's, you know, people describe that they can't form sentences. 
they forget what they're doing. You know, it can be very, really debilitating, mm. the neurosymptoms. And then the other key feature is also a nervous system disruption. So if we just park EBV for a bit and just the symptoms of long COVID, sort of those core features, is telling us also that SARS-CoV-2 probably disrupted our autonomic nervous system, basically our, our autopilot. And in fact, even when people speak of their symptoms where they, they don't have long COVID, but they even talk about their acute infection. And some people get these symptoms during their acute phase, things like racing heart, tachycardia, and as I said, the neurosymptoms and all those bits and pieces, chest pains, shortness of breath. Shortness of breath is really, really common. And what this is telling us is that a lot of those core symptoms are nervous system disruption. So the autopilot has been put out of whack and so we're not breathing properly. So, you know, that can create the shortness of breath. Mm -hmm. We automatically think of shortness of breath as lung damage and it's more that your nervous system's gone a bit funny because it's been disrupted. So, as I say, tachycardia, racing heart, you know, and it can be very alarming that your, your heart rate's going crazy. But these all point to what we call dysautonomia. Many GPs haven't seen this or at least seen this much. Or the, the classic diagnosis is POTS, which is essentially when you sit up, your heart rate goes through the roof. Right. Orthostatic intolerance, essentially. And that's due to blood pressure yeah, so changes. You, so yeah. you've lost the ability to, your body has stopped knowing how to manage changes in blood pressure, heart rate, and breathing. Mm. And those things can happen during your acute phase, because I've talked to people that sort of said, yeah, I had strange this, that, and the other. And for some people, that never recovers. So that's a nervous system disruption. So that, to me, sounds like it's been triggered by this virus. And it's whether or not that recovers, we don't know. But at the same time, we are now sort of looking to whether how much of this is due to a reawakening of a virus that we're living with already. And, and I'm speaking about the sort of common ones. The herpes family is quite a big family of viruses, you know, and some of them we may never even hear about. But, you know, there's lots of potential viruses on board that might be contributing because the immune suppression that we normally do has been disrupted. So long COVID could be potentially some of these suppressed dormant viruses in us just coming out and expressing their nastiness. And then, mm. so you're saying like with long COVID, we're sharing similar symptoms to what we would if we were exhibiting some of these viruses dormant in us. Potentially. And I think there's still a bit of a difference between, say, EBV being an acute infection, you know, like what you'd get if you had glandular fever. It's more the fact that these viruses have hijacked your system. Mm. They're little hijackers. So they're, you know, when they're active, they're sort of distracting your normal system. So so when we sort of think of the fatigue or this extreme, you know, people talk about it feeling like they're poisoned. It feels like this state that they just can't articulate because it's just so, so bizarre. Mm. And, you know, when you sort of strip it back, it could be because, you know, a virus has taken over. But we, d we don't really know. But what there's a few other hypotheses around um, whether SARS-CoV-2 is still in the body. And there are bits and pieces of literature coming through that suggest there might be some virus somewhere. It, we, we don't necessarily think it's alive somewhere, but there's a reservoir somewhere or whether it's just dead virus somewhere that's keeping the immune system turned on. There's a lot of people following that as well. And the gut is a place that that could be happening. We think, you know, there's gut triggers, because the gut can be a target 
of this virus. It could be microbiome disruption. It's widespread vascular issues, if you like, that can be disrupted. So loads of sort of different hypotheses, but central to some form of tissue damage and whether that's nerves and the blood vessels themselves, which feed every organ, Mm -hmm. so we're going to expect havoc, the immune system dysfunction, and whether that immune dysfunction is anything to do with fighting the virus or just collateral damage, we don't know, but there's definitely disruption there. And maybe that disruption means your immune system stopped controlling our latent viruses very well anymore. And so that's sort of where I'm centering on, the immune dysfunction. Mm. And then the sort of third pillar there is what virus or what is that called trigger? You know, what's the external trigger? Is it leftover SARS-CoV-2? Is it onboard viruses that have reawakened? Is it a disrupted microbiome? Is it onset of autoimmunity? Yeah, the, the- It's so much and there's so much unanswered, right? Yes. That Do you think we'll ever get to the bottom of it and, like, you will have it all figured out? I think that because it's a pandemic virus, that the scale of long COVID is a pandemic crisis as well. So there are so many people that would be impacted by this. So there is going to be so much resources sunk into this. It's just taken too long. Right. The core groups that sounded the alarm internationally were doctors and athletes. You know, they were saying, hey, we're not recovered, which is sad, right, that it took athletes and doctors to be taken seriously, that this was a a real condition that needed resourcing into. Mm. But politically... Of course. It's, it was all to do with reducing mortality, absolutely. But now the, we need to shift to this. And because post-viral illnesses are not new, ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, is triggered by infections. And it's been medically neglected as a psychological disorder when we absolutely know that's not the case. And so it's rewriting. Well, not even rewriting. I was going to say rewriting medicine. It's not been in medicine because it was dismissed as not being a real condition. So the silver lining of a pandemic-scale virus is to shine the light on all of this neglect and bring it all to the forefront to do better. So, yeah, we've already got great hints to chase down, and I think there's massive neglect in understanding latent viruses in our bodies because we absolutely know that they can, as I said, EBV is now linked to MS, So then there's going to be lots of drug discovery in that space as well, sort of to understand how to keep all that, you know, to put it back in its box or to treat it. So I think there is hope. Absolutely. So, okay, so if we get another SARS-CoV-2 or worse happening in the next few years, you think we'll be in a better position to know what to do? I would hope so. Mm. I mean, I I think the thing's going to be remaining vigilant that to not take these things for granted, Mm. that we do need to look after our health and respect that not everyone has a solid immune system. We don't know what that looks like. We would love to know what that looks like. And I think over time we may be able to, again, because it's such a pandemic-scale problem, we'll absolutely be able to hone in on those superhumans. Mm. There will be some superhumans. Who knows who, what that looks like? But I think that's how we start to learn, right? We, we start to sort of capture what is it about someone's immune system that shuts these viruses down versus someone it escapes on. Mm. So, yeah, so much complexity in there. Okay, so we've come out of this nasty winter, coming into summer, thinking forward to next winter. How might someone prepare themselves best to get through the next winter? You know, how can they strengthen their immune system leading into next winter? I mean, if you're someone who's been, you know, you've had COVID-19, it's really, really important to listen to your body. If you 
are feeling any of those lingering effects, whether it's fatigue or a bit funny and, you know, brain fog and all of that, rest through it. Do not ever think that this is something to push through. We absolutely know from uh, the patient groups internationally, especially where there was large-scale long COVID people early on, that pushing through triggered their long COVID. So that's always going to be important to just not push through that. And it can be mental exertion as well, emotional, mental exertion. Any of that exertion can be really detrimental to push through. So that, that's a key thing if you do get infected is to make sure you're listening to your body through that and, and replenishing through good diet and all the rest of it as well. So looking after your body as much as you can, there's no magic answer other than keeping yourself in the healthiest place you can, obviously, Let's hope, you know, we're coming out the other side of winter now and, you know, as we head into summer, we will see that relief happen. We're more, we're outdoors more. We'll start to get that good health vibe, you know, coming back again. And it's also remembering that this isn't gone away. You know, we need to be mindful that some of us might get infected, might get infected again and again and again, and we don't want that to be the norm, if you like. We mm. wanted what we really want is to actually emphasize clean air because viruses are everywhere. The more that we can reduce burden on our immune systems, the better. Just quickly, is it like the amount of virus particles in some sort of air that you might breathe in that might determine if you if you get it? Like if it's there's only a couple of particles in the air and you breathe it in, it's like you're probably going to be fine. But then if there's like, you know, millions and someone sneeze that you breathe in, then are you more likely to then for it to take hold? Yeah, kind of. Like, isn't, I mean, and that's what we speak of being in high-risk environments with a mask on. If you get infected, you know, you've got a smaller fight versus a face full of it. Absolutely. Mm. So yes, it is in a similar vein. But at the same time, if you're susceptible and you get a few particles up your nose and you get infected, boom, it's going to take hold, right? But yes, the fight is an easier fight. So absolutely. And that might be how some of us are, the superhumans, where you you might only see a little bit, but you shut it down really quickly. Right. And you don't, it barely touches the sides. But if you get a whole face full of it, it's going to infect lots of cells and therefore it's going to be harder to shut down. Yeah. So yes, viral load is always going to be important. Right. So the less you breathe in, the better. Just hold your breath. Hey, thank you so much for your time. I know you're so busy. This is a, such a hot topic and your speaking mm. engagements are off the chart. So if anyone wants to kind of follow your research mm. and check in on what you're, with what you're up to, how do they follow you or uh, keep up to date with what you're doing? At the moment, I'm just sort of easily searchable on well, I sort of crop up everywhere, just in news items at the moment. But we do hope to have a, a web page up and running soon to be a bit more of a landing page to sort of keep people up to date with what's going on. Um, haven't quite got that going on because we, we've had to crowdfund. Really? Yeah, crowdfunded. Yeah, because wow. there's just no urgency in this space. So, yeah, so, you know, you can find me on, on uh, the Auckland University website, which shows a teeny little brief about the research to mm-hmm. sort of highlight that we're crowdfunding. But as I say, I hope to actually have a substantial page soon so that people can follow along. Oh, yeah, because there's, there's lots to uncover. and It's yeah. an exciting space. It is, it is. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll um, we'll get you back on in time where you've got, you know, some, some talk about the new discoveries. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Awesome. Until then, thank you so much. No problem. Oh, one last question before you go. What did you think of the podcast? Did you like it? 
Because if you did, then please rate it and review it and share it and tell people about it. Tell your mum, tell your dad, tell some random guy down the road. It really does make a big difference and it helps us to keep creating this podcast and sharing this awesome information with you for free. This show is brought to you by Raw Collective, the podcast company behind the creation of this show. You will find all updates on the Raw Collective Instagram as well as on the website rawcollective.co. Now get out of here. Go have a good day. Get out of here. Bye.